This is a message from Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Youssef. We pray that it will encourage you in your walk of faith. If you would like to learn more about Dr. Youssef or Leading the Way, please visit ltw.org. These days, there is a great deal of debate on the issue of character. And what we are seeing today is that our culture is changing before our very eyes. Probably in very few generations who are able to see it as clearly as we can see it in our own culture right now. Not many years ago, while we still had some Christian residue in our culture, character in people was very, very important. Today, as we get deeper and deeper into the post-Christian era, character is becoming of less importance. Now, most of you know that uh, I spent a number of years in doing postgraduate studies in that whole subject of culture and cultural change in society. As a matter of fact, back in my days of academia, thank God he delivered me from that. <laughs> Back in those days, there was a standard joke as to why God could never get a tenure to teach at the university. And here are some of the reasons. He had only one major publication. <laughs> and back then was about, you know, all the motto was publish or perish. And that publication was in Greek and Hebrew. <laughs> it had no references. He never published in a prominent journal. Some deny the fact that uh, he wrote the book himself. The scientific community cannot replicate his results. Thank God for that. (laughs) He rarely came to class, but he often told his students to read his book. (laughs) Some have insisted that it was his son who taught his class. In fact, he has several strikes against him. He expelled his very first two students. Although he had only 10 requirements for the class, all students flunked. His office hours were irregular, and he often held his class on a mountaintop. And that class on a mountaintop is what I'll be studying with you for the next several messages. Because in his class on the mountaintop, God's Son, God in human flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ has taught us that what may have become acceptable or is acceptable to the culture may not be acceptable to Him. And what is acceptable to Him may never be accepted by our culture. And that is why it is a vitally important document. What is easily perceptible in our society today and as we look around us and as we watch our television news at night, is that we have crossed over the divide that has marked the difference between worldly standards and biblical and moral standards. That we have crossed that divide where secular and godless morality was practiced by a few, but admired by the vast majority, to seeing right before our own eyes that a secular and godless morality is accepted by the majority in the United States today. Consequently, we are seeing that biblical morality has become less and less appealing. Certainly, it is practiced by fewer and fewer people today. 
What do we do in times of cultural upheaval such as ours? What do we do in times of cultural and moral shift? What do we do when we see a wholesale departure from biblical frame of reference, even on the part of the mainline church? What do we do in times of cultural confusion? What do we do in times of social change? We have only one option, and it is we are compelled to go back to our anchor. We are compelled to go back to our roots. We are compelled to go back to our foundation. And we are compelled to uphold the truth and never budge to the pressure of culture that wants us to compromise every single day. Today, as we begin to examine our master's manifesto, that anchor, that foundation, that root, you're going to find that in the master's manifesto, the manifesto of the Lord Jesus Christ, he turns the social standards on their head. That Jesus turns the norms, the cultural norms, upside down. You're going to find in this master's manifesto a reverse of the secular pattern of culture. Therefore, when the secular culture says, Happy are you who are proud and aggressive, for you will get your way. Jesus says, Happy are you who are poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. When the secular culture says, Happy are you who are party animals, for yours is the social ladder to climb. You're going to hear Jesus say, happy are you who mourn over your sin, because you will truly know what comfort is all about. When the secular culture says, happy are you who don't care upon whom you step in order to get your way, for yours is the corporate and political success. You're going to hear the master say, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Then when your secular lords are saying, happy are the ones who will die with the most toys, for that will make life worthwhile. You'll hear the Master say, Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness, because you truly are going to be satisfied and know what satisfaction is all about. When the society's pundits say, Happy are you who are able to get even, for this is a mean world. The Lord of all says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. When the liberal standard bearers in our society are saying, Happy are you who choose an alternate lifestyle, for in it is the satisfaction of your perversion. Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And then when the world says, Happy are those who stir up trouble. Happy are those who scheme and manipulate and lie. For any selfish cause is a good cause. Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemaker, for they shall be called the children of God. And then when the cultural elite in our society today say, Happy are you when you eliminate godly standards from our midst. For in it there is restriction to our freedom to live as we want. You're going to hear the Messiah said, Blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness sake for yours is the kingdom of heaven and when satan's manifesto says happy are you who can stamp out god and his book out of public life for that is how you will appear to be politically correct you're going to hear the master manifesto say blessed are you 
when people revile you, when they persecute you, when they insult you, when they say all manners of evil against you for my name's sake. That is the master's manifesto. He turns the norms on their head. He turns the standards of society upside down. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. The Master's Manifesto, you're going to discover not only the nature of character, you're going to discover the source of character. That the world is often talk about it. It's in the talk shows. It's in the news media. They talk about character, but they don't know where it comes from and how to get it. And the truth is this, that character cannot be found. Character cannot be established in any life without a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You can talk about morality and its laxity in our society. You can talk about all of our social ills. But I want to declare to you that without the Lord Jesus Christ, we are putting a band-aid on a gunshot wound. Without Jesus Christ, we are treating cancer with aspirin. Without Jesus Christ, we are trying to put out a bushfire with a bucket of water. Without the Lord Jesus Christ, we are draining a flood with a half-inch hose. Now, to be sure, the crowd to whom Jesus was speaking on that little hill, they were not necessarily comprehending everything that he was saying. But here's what I want to tell you. God's Messiah, God in human flesh, had a vision for them. For he did not only see them the way they were, but he saw them the way they could be. He did not only see them in their inabilities, but he saw them in their possibilities. He did not only see their current condition, but he saw their possible future conduct. For the king who has given us his rule and his manifesto in ruling in the hearts of men and women, he knew That when his kingdom, when his manifesto is began to be manifested in the life of an individual, then it's going to take hold of a family. And when it takes hold in a family, it's going to take hold of a community. And when it takes hold of a community, it's going to be able to take hold of a whole society. Jesus knew that one person plus the master's manifesto will make a difference. And in the Master's Manifesto, Jesus is telling us this. Listen carefully, please. Hear me right. Don't misunderstand me. It's a sense of priority here. And he's telling us that character is before conduct. He is telling us that being is more important than doing. He is telling us that spiritual is over and above ritual. He is telling us that it is what is below the surface is going to shape the surface. He is telling us that what is important is not what you have, but what you are. He is telling us that what is in your private heart sooner or later is going to come out in the public life. That is the essence of the manifesto that the master handed to his followers. Most of us claim to follow. And that is why this master's manifesto is a very important document. Now, of course, wicked men had their own manifestos. Hitler had his own Mein Kampf. And he brought the horrors and nearly brought the world into a brink of disaster. Karl Marx had his manifesto that gave us the horrors of communism. Ayatollah Khomeini wrote a book called My Mein Kampf, and I have a copy of it. 
Back when he was in exile in Paris, France. And secular media laughed at him, joked at him. But listen, since 1979, the Iranian revolution has been suspected of sponsoring terrorism all over the world. And even after his death, still going on. Wicked men have their own manifesto for the destruction and for evil. The Lord Jesus Christ on the extreme opposite side of that wickedness. And these wicked people... He given us his manifesto. It is a manifesto that gives life and not death. It is a manifesto where whoever will obey it, whoever let it shape their life, whoever will let it be part and parcel of who he is and who she is, will change the world for good and for God. I want to give you one example and move on. I don't have the time. I could go through history and I'll give you examples. William Wilberforce, a couple of hundred years ago, was a parliamentarian in England. In the British Parliament, he gets impacted by the Master's Manifesto. And single-handedly, he helped end the horrors of slavery. Wilberforce was introduced to the Master and the Master's Manifesto by John Wesley. Listen to me, young people especially. All, everybody, listen to me. Because there's some people think, well, you have to be a big shot in order to make a difference for God. And just in case you think that here I'm throwing the names of big people who've done big things and and have done great things for God, I want to tell you that John Wesley was introduced to the master by a lowly porter in Oxford, England. When John Wesley was 21 years of age, he went to Oxford University. Although he grew up in the Anglican rector's home, he understood the biblical teaching Although he was gifted, he was intelligent, he was good-looking, John Wesley was cynical, he was snobbish, and he was sarcastic. And always cut people with his words. And one night at Oxford University, he began to speak to a porter who literally was so poor, he only owned the coat that he was wearing. And Wesley sarcastically said to him, and I quote, he said, what else do you thank God for? And the porter smiled and gently replied, and I quote, I thank him that he has given me my life and my being and a heart to love him and above all a constant desire to serve him. And that was the turning point in John Wesley's life. And all that's been accomplished through John Wesley, the credit goes to this lonely porter. In 1791, when Wesley was at his deathbed, at the age of 88, he attributed his life and attributed his ministry to that man who was a porter at Oxford. His life, his being, shined. Jesus' manifesto came out in this man's life. And God used him, through Wesley, to impact the world and save England from the horrors of the French Revolution. You don't have to be a big shot to make a difference for God. And the Master's Manifesto is about being. And that is why Jesus pronounces these nine beatitudes, nine blessings, nine types of contentments. They're translated in some Bibles as happy are you. That's fine too. As long as you understand what happy means. does not mean the happy hour. (laughs) It has nothing to do with it. In its real, literal meaning. You know, happiness is a big business in our culture. It really is. I mean, it's just a big business. Everybody's trying to sell you something. And if you buy it, you're going to be happy. All the way from denture cream to foot fungus treatment. (laughs) 
everything is going to make you happy. You know, I thank God they have my identity in Christ. I mean, it's so confusing. If you eat too much, you're going to get die. If you don't eat too much, you're going to die. If you eat this, you're going to get cancer. If you eat that, you're going to get that. I mean, it's crazy. Our world is going crazy. And the tragedy is that the further we depart from the Master's Manifesto, the more we believe that happiness and joy can be found in things, that joy and happiness can be found in people. While in reality, it is like salt water. The more you drink it, the more thirsty you become. The more you drink it, the more thirsty you become. The more you want to drink it. And it's never satisfying. It's never contenting. And people go from one experience to the other, thinking that they're going to find contentment somewhere, and they don't have it. And someone said that uh, Americans believe in the life, liberty, and the purchase of happiness. (laughs) Well, I think because the Declaration of Independence says that everybody's entitled to the pursuit of happiness, I'm saying is it doesn't mean that the government should finance the chase. But some do. According to the Master's Manifesto, happiness is not found in any of the places that people think they can find it. It is not found in the abandonment of faith. You hear people all day long, if we just get rid of these restrictions, if we get rid of these fundamentalists in our culture, if we get rid of these religious rights in our culture, if we can get rid of all these restrictions, we'd be a happy people. Listen to what Voltaire said, who was the outspoken opponent of the Christian faith. He said, I wish I had never was born. It is not found in pleasure. Lord Byron lived the life of pleasure if anyone did. And listen to what he wrote. He said, the worm, the canker, the grief are all mine alone. Certainly it's not found in money. Jay Gould had a ton of money. And when he was dying, he said, I suppose I am the most miserable man on earth. And certainly it's not found in position and fame. Lord Beaconsfield enjoyed more than his fair share of both. And yet he wrote, Youth is a mistake. Manhood is a struggle. Old age a regret. It is not found in achieving of your goals and military success. For Alexander the Great, after he conquered the known world of his time, he sat and he wept in sorrow because there was no more worlds to conquer. The only contentment that anyone can have comes from knowing the master. And knowing the master leads you to living by the master's manifesto. And the master's manifesto is where true happiness is found. Well, with that brief introduction, (laughs) let's look at the Beatitudes. The first one, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. (laughs) The first beatitude, the king, spells out the nature of his kingdom. You want to know the nature of the kingdom of God? I'm not talking about the secular world. This is the nature of the kingdom of God. He spells it out. You know, the root word in the Greek for happy or, or blessed is the word makarios. Makarioi, blessed are you. And it could be easily translated, contented is the poor in spirit. Fortunate is the poor in spirit. Fulfilled is the poor in spirit. Easily it means that. That's what I meant earlier. Happiness means fulfillment. It means contentment. That's what Jesus is pronouncing. Blessed indeed are those who recognize their poverty in spirit. In Luke's gospel, Luke does not say poor in spirit. He just leaves the word poor. 
But the Greek word for poor here means spiritual poverty and not material poverty. I'm going to explain that to you. It's very important. Because all of these nine Beatitudes, this Master's Manifesto, have to do with the inner character and not the outward appearance. They have to do with the spiritual condition of my heart and not my material possessions. Now there are many exhortations in the scripture regarding the poor and caring for the poor. And I do not minimize that, not for one moment. But here in this Master's Manifesto, Jesus is dealing specifically with the inner spiritual condition of the heart. So what is spiritual poverty? Does it mean the person who doesn't read the scripture? Does it mean the person whose prayer life is haphazard and never spend time before God? Seeking, glorifying, honoring, praying? No. Does it mean the person who does not walk in spirit? No. These people might be spiritually poor, but not poor in spirit. And there's a difference. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Please hear me right. By nature, human nature. And you have run into people like this. You probably like this. You've been like that. We are self-sufficient. By nature, we think that we're okay. By nature, we think that if we don't kill, rob, or steal, we are fine. By nature, we think that if we have a church affiliation, that means we're Christians. By nature, we think that if we give a couple of dollars here and a couple of dollars there, we are the last of the big spenders. (laughs) But what Jesus is saying is that our presumption is wrong, very wrong. Why? Because by definition, the word poor does not suggest happiness. By definition, the word poor means lacking in something. And to be poor in spirit is to recognize that I am nothing in myself, that I have nothing, and that I can do nothing without Jesus Christ. To be poor in spirit is being conscious of my own emptiness. Poverty in spirit is the work of the Holy Spirit of God in me that is showing me the way I am, not the way I like to deceive myself and think that I am. Poverty in spirit means that I come to that painful discovery that all of my righteousness is like a filthy rag. Poor in spirit is that spiritual awakening that tells me that without Christ, the best of my performance is unacceptable. Yea, it's an abomination to the Holy One. Poverty in spirit manifests itself when an individual can say, without Jesus Christ and his saving work on the cross, I deserve nothing but hell and damnation for all eternity. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. Jesus is not saying that if someone is poor in spirit, Jesus is going to give him the kingdom in order to make him happy. No, Jesus is not in the business of handing out sobs. But he's saying that the poor in spirit is happy. Why? Because he has the kingdom already. That happiness of the kingdom is a natural Sequence and it's not an arbitrary reward. The king is not bestowing gifts to make people happy, but rather that he creates the condition in the inner heart. He creates a condition within that enables us to find happiness. But I wonder how many of you really believe 
that happiness is an inside job. It's an inside job. Not dependent on the outward circumstances. I hear people say, oh, if I have a boyfriend or have a girlfriend, I'll be happy. No, you don't. You bring happiness to the relationship. I even said, if I get married, I'll be happy. No, you won't. You bring happiness into the marriage. I hear people, if I can only have this job, I'll be happy. No, you won't. You bring happiness into that job. I hear people say, well, if I belong to that church, I think that's where we're going to meet all my needs. No, it won't. There is no church that's going to meet your needs. There is no church that's going to make you happy. You take your happiness to the church. Amen? Amen. Happiness is an inside job. And it begins by recognizing that I am totally, absolutely, without doubt, dependent on the living God. That I am not the master of my destiny. That I am not the captain of my ship. That I am not the all-powerful being that society tells me that I am. And that the motivational speakers tell me that I am. And that the schools tell me that I am. Without Jesus, I am nothing, have nothing, can do nothing. Now you can see why I wouldn't make a great motivational speaker. If I am willing to be governed and ruled by the king, then I'm admitting my spiritual poverty. The poor in spirit are those in whom the pride of will and the pride of the intellect and the pride of the heart have all bending to the king. To obtain the kingdom... Be in the kingdom, have the kingdom, happens when you only submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Poverty in spirit emanates from the very act of submission. You know, I don't know what it's like to declare financial bankruptcy. Probably I'll never will because I don't have much to declare bankruptcy with. But I lived some years ago with a friend who has. It's not very pleasant. It's very painful. Some of you have been through it, you know what I'm talking about. Declaring spiritual bankruptcy is the greatest act that will bring you true joy and happiness. The Apostle Paul lists all the pain and the hurts and the weakness in his life and he declares that he's without Jesus Christ, he's nothing. And then he said, thanks be to God that I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me. Without Jesus Christ, we can do nothing Heavenly Father, I surrender to you and I declare bankruptcy. I know that spiritually I can do nothing without your power. I am not saved by my own strength. I'm not saved by my own efforts, but only by the blood of Christ that shed on Calvary. Thank you, Father, for the Lord Jesus Christ. Fill me with your spirit for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. 